the last couple of days, I've been reading a book that I got when I visited a lovely afternoon with John and Kath McLeod, and I've been reading their son's um, book that he published a few years back on the political history of Northern Ireland, of Great Britain, and indeed the role of the United States in the late 60s and the 1970s. Alan McLeod is a research fellow at Leeds University, and for all that his mum said, I actually find it very readable. So there we are. Do convey that back. It's, I find it readable. Nobody knows everybody would, but I find it very readable and very informative. Fifty years ago, of course, those of us who can remember that, even if we were very young, um, the situation in Northern Ireland was really beginning to, to build up. There had been demonstrations, civil rights demonstrations in the 1960s, quite rightly so, from the large part of the population, nearly half of the population, the Roman Catholic population, that was effectively debarred from so much of public life and involvement in the politics of what was then, uh, still is today, a devolved part of the United Kingdom. But of course, those civil rights demonstrations were hijacked by militants, by people who referred to them as terrorists, by the IRA, and various troubles began. The troubles, as they were known, began, culminating, of course, in many very sad and very bloody incidents during the 1970s and indeed into the 1980s. And they really, in a sense, only came to an end with the Good Friday Agreement way back in 1997 and the restoration of devolved government. But even today, we are aware that things are far from peaceful in the province and there are great tensions. Indeed, the high point, perhaps, of coming together was actually when two very unlikely people served as First Minister and Deputy First Minister. When the Reverend Ian Paisley, and even I, as a young boy in the 1970s, can remember him ranting on television about various things. Um, when he became the First Minister, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, and Martin McGuinness who was appointed by Sinn Féin to be their representative in the power-sharing executive in Ireland. And actually, for a period, they obviously worked together actually very well, quite remarkably so. Two people, Martin McGuinness, when he was asked about it, said that until they had come together to share power, they'd never spoken a word to each other. They'd never even conversed about the weather. They came from diametrically opposite views of the future of Northern Ireland. And yet, for a period, they were known as Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and they actually seem to have a dynamic relationship. That's not the case now, unfortunately, between the First Minister and Deputy First Minister in Northern Ireland. Things have gone down somewhat. But that was really a partnership, which certainly for a period, and we trust a long period, a continuing period, speaks of hope for that troubled part of the United Kingdom. Often, the most powerful partnerships that can take place are between people who are radically different. They are brought together for a common cause. They come with their differences. They come with their different perspectives, their different personalities, their different understandings, and yet together they're greater than an individual. Of course, that's the whole point of partnership, of being a team. Together we're stronger than an individual can or could or should be. And for the next three Sundays, we're going to look at one of those dynamic partnerships, not in politics, but in the service of the gospel. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, 
And we're going this morning, and for those who came to the devotionals, really what we did at the devotionals a few weeks ago inspired my thoughts on this. And so for the next three Sundays, we're going to dip into the partnership that took place in the New Testament in the book of Acts between Paul and Barnabas. And this morning, we're going to look at who Barnabas was, how he met Paul, and how that partnership between them that led to the first great missionary journey of the church began. And so we're going to look at three sections from the book of Acts this morning. But let's first of all read the first section from Acts chapter 4. And we're going to read from verse 32 to verse 36. From Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 36, or 37 it is actually. And the setting, of course, is the birth of the early church and the growth of the early church. And yet very quickly as the church grew, opposition arose, just as Jesus had warned them. And so earlier on in chapter 4, we have Peter and John brought before the spiritual leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, and told basically they were to stop speaking about Jesus. And Peter makes it very clear that they have no intention to do that. You don't need to look back, but let me just read this to you. In verse 8 of chapter 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to the Sanhedrin rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and have been asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when the religious leaders saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And so under threat of punishment and everything else, they were released. The church prayed together, and we're told in verse 31 of chapter 4 that after that prayer meeting, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Where Jesus is at work, mighty things happen. Lives are changed. That crippled man was healed. People are turned around in the reaction. But there's also the reaction which is anti-God, and that's what was beginning to happen. But let's pick up on the story in verse 32 of chapter 4 from the book of Acts. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Things were happening. God 
was at work. We're told God's grace was powerfully at work in them all. And the tangible sign of that was the fellowship of God's people. That's why, of course, right through this time of challenge, the last 18 months during lockdown and all the problems before and during and after it, we have sought as a fellowship, and as churches have done up and down our land, to emphasize that even though we are parted by distance, we're still together in the spirit and part of a church, part of the church of Jesus Christ and part of the congregation. And I know that during that time of challenge, despite the fact that we couldn't see each other as freely as we once had, the whole network of support and care, both in a formal sense, as elders and office bearers phoned and kept in touch with members, but also in a more informal sense, as you individually kept in touch with people and chatted to them, all of that, and in many tangible ways, a sense of fellowship and belonging was expressed as it has been up and down the land. Interest this morning, I was listening to Sunday on the radio, Radio 4, and they were talking about online worship, and you heard a very poor version of it from a church, which was, you know, all the static interference, and you could hardly hear the voice, and it sounded pretty awful. And then you had a very slick version presented by Holy Trinity Church, Brompton in London, with two young people on it and telling you you could press on your, you know, your iPad or your phone and you could connect to this person. sounded amazing. But interesting enough, in a survey that was carried out, more than half of those under 50, we're not talking about oldies, more than half of those under 50 who either were in church or who had begun to explore the things of faith and church over these past 18 months said that they didn't want to do it at a distance online, but they wanted to meet up in person with people. Built into us is that need for community, for fellowship, even if it is behind a mask and socially distanced. And the sign of the Spirit of God in, at work here was that that restoration of fellowship, that care for each other, that hint of what Eden was meant to be, that picture of what it was to be for God's people to live in harmony with the creator of heaven and earth, that is lived out and worked out within the church so that we're told there were no needy persons among them. And again, another sign of the Spirit of God at work was that people's purses or wallets were loosened. People became less precious about their possessions. And so we're told that from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it to the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And again, during this time of challenge, I want to thank you as a congregation for your continued liberality. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have been able to pay the bills. Is that not right, Janice? Angry money you gave as you were able, both when you came in, the plate, as you still do, and many of you, of course, went on to do it online uh, through the banking system. But nonetheless, the funds kept in, and I thank you for that. That's a sign again. Liberality is a sign again of God's Spirit at work as our wallets and purses are opened, and as we give out of the bounty that we have received and as we share that with others so that ministry and service can continue all signs of God's spirit at work and evidence in many ways of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who makes all things you but particularly in the story you'll notice that where attention is drawn to a man called Joseph a Levite from Cyprus a Jewish man 
And not just any old Jewish man, but somebody who was a Levite, who was born into that clan, into that dynasty, you might say, of those who serve God in the temple. And it's quite possible that born and brought up in Cyprus, perhaps from a family that had possessions. Obviously, he had a field that he owned and he could sell it. And maybe he had come to Jerusalem to serve in the church, or the temple rather. Or perhaps he'd come to Jerusalem at Pentecost to worship God, to worship Jehovah, Jehovah, Yahweh. Whatever means, whatever reason, he came to a faith, a faith in Jesus the Messiah. And actually fulfilling his calling as a Levite, where the Old Testament makes it clear that the Levitical class were not to need to have possessions of their own because the rest of God's people were there to provide for them and to care for them so that they could exercise their ministry. I suppose it is a pointer towards ministers, pastors, church workers today who are provided for by the people of God in order that they can do their work. So for the Levites... That was to be their calling. They were to have no earthly inheritance, but an inheritance in heaven. And so Joseph, fulfilling his calling, now as a messianic believer, sells a field he owns and brings the money to the apostles' feet. But that's not all. That's an interesting story. One of the early converts to the gospel as I say, perhaps at the day of Pentecost or the events that just followed on from that. But more importantly, we're told he got a nickname because we don't know this man really in the New Testament as Joseph. We know him as Barnabas. And we're told, we're explained what that means. Son of encouragement. Or in the Hebrew, an exhorter. An exhorter. And so obviously, very quickly, Joseph, Barnabas, became known as somebody who was an encourager who would come alongside folks and help them, perhaps during the period when Peter and John were in jail and the early believers were gathered together in that prayer meeting. And perhaps that during that period particularly, he was noticed as somebody who was positive. You can imagine. You can imagine folk thinking, oh, well, that's us now, isn't it? You know, I'm a bit, a bit like that. You know, we're, we're Scottish folk in the Kirk are a wee bit like that. Well, that's it, you see. I told you. It would all end up in tears, you know. And yeah, <laughs> that with them, oh. That'll be them. We'll never see them again, you know. <laughs> we're all here for today, gone tomorrow. Any minute now, we're going to get the knock on the door and the, the Romans or the, the Jewish guards over there and we'll all be dragged off. And I remember when Jesus was crucified. The same thing's going to happen to us, you know. And, and you can just imagine that spirit going about. And perhaps Joseph was the one who said, well, just hold on a wee minute. First of all, Jesus did tell us. We've been told by the apostles that Jesus warned us that this would happen. But at the end of the day, who's in charge here ultimately? Who ultimately is the one who is mighty and who is powerful? Interesting enough, in the prayer that's raised up, obviously a, a, a corporate prayer that's raised up, we're told it earlier in chapter 4, it says, Sovereign Lord, verse 24, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, 
consider the threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I don't know about you, can I can certainly imagine Barnabas giving a hearty, what did he say at the end? Amen. We'll get a wee bit Pentecostal here. What did he say at the end? Amen. Yes. He was that kind of guy. He had faith in the sovereign God. After all, here is someone who had been, and it's hard maybe for us to imagine, here is somebody who was embraced by the one that Israel longed for, Israel's consolation. Here is someone whose eyes have been opened that all the law, all the rituals, all the process of the Jewish religion found their yes and amen in this Jesus who had been crucified but who raised from the dead. His whole view of life was transformed. that was seen in the fact that he was a son of encouragement and a blessing to the church that's what we're all meant to be we're meant to be a blessing to each other yes we can all have our down days we can all have our struggles we can have our times of doubt and perhaps even of despair Sometimes because of very real calamitous situations in our life. Sometimes because, let's be honest, we're just a bit like that. But God can bring alongside a woman or a man of encouragement. Something to exhort us. Something to remind us of the good things of God. Something to remind us of what really is the heart of the faith. The God that appeared on the cross to be defeated is the God who, take, the God who takes defeat and brings forth tremendous victory and triumph who can take that which seems to be impossible and make all things possible. And Joseph, whom the apostles called Barnabas, was such a man. Let's read on, but that's, that's who Barnabas is. Let's read on in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. And can I say, somebody was visiting just a few weeks ago and visibly saw and audibly heard you opening your Bibles. And I know many of us use our phones now, and that's, that's great, that's great. But they were very encouraged by the church. They actually saw it and heard it in line, so that just shows. And they were very encouraged and, and were stirred by the fact that as a people of God, we, we, we look at our Bibles. So commend you for that as well. I'm, I'm in a, a positive, encouraging mood today, obviously, obviously. Let's turn to chapter 9. And we've heard the, the story, the story of Saul's conversion to the gospel on the road to Damascus. And, you know, well, chapter 9 and verse 4, verse 3, as they neared Damascus on the journey, suddenly light from heaven flashed around them, and Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And he did. And Ananias came along and led him to personal faith and baptized him. So Saul was converted. And we pick the story up in chapter 9 and in verse 26. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. 
So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarshish. You can just imagine, they have a prayer meeting. And Peter and John are in jail. Oh, well, you see, this is it. The next thing they hear is, oh, have you heard? Saul's back in town. Him! And he wants to join us. What? <sighs> Over my dead body. You can imagine, imagine the fear. And many of you understand him. And the suspicion. Here was a man who was on the road to Damascus to persecute the church. Here was a man who had stood and had been a party to the stoning and death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Here's a man who was zealous against Christianity. He saw it as a dangerous, as a diabolical cult and had to be done away with. And here they now believe he's in town back in Jerusalem and he wants to become one of them. You can just imagine why we're told that they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. He was just going to come in here, folk would be saying. He's just wanting to watch. He's just wanting to spy. He's wanting to get information from us. And then before long, yet again, they'll be knocking the door. And the soldiers will be there, and it'll be all over. But we're told Barnabas identified him and brought him to the apostles. We're not told how Barnabas knew all that was happening. Because we're told that they told the rest of the disciples how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Perhaps Barnabas had already met with Saul. Perhaps as soon as he arrived in town he had heard from others that here this man had had a tremendous encounter with Jesus and he had sought him out. Whatever the case was, Barnabas wasn't going to buy into the negativity and the suspicion. And how often, sadly, as Christians and as the church, we often lose out and fail to catch a blessing and to enter into a blessing because we allow human fears and suspicions and weariness to hold us back. Barnabas wasn't like that. He saw an opportunity. He was willing to risk himself. Let's be honest, if Saul had been a fifth columnist, well, Barnabas would have been the first one that would have been arrested and taken away. But he wasn't willing to take seriously what Jesus has said, that whoever calls their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and the Gospels will gain it. And he went. Not only that, but he acted as an intermediary between Saul and and the apostles. He came alongside Saul. No doubt he heard personally what had happened. And then he came. And again, we're not told the details. Whether he went first to the apostles or brought along Saul. And they're all kind of watching and waiting. And then Barnabas speaks up and explains. We're not told how or what. But he acts as a peacemaker. Oh, did Jesus now say something about that? Blessed are the peacemakers. The Jesus who is the peacemaker, Paul tells us in Ephesians, and breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, not only between us and a holy God, but between people. And the calling of Christians to have that ministry of breaking down walls of hostility. How we thank God that, for instance, in Northern Ireland, it was the church, not all of the church, but parts of the church, the Protestant church, 
and the Roman Catholic Church, who often sought to work together and form peace battalions and the peace wall and other things that happened back in the days, seeking to identify and show witness to the fact that, yes, people can be reconciled. Barnabas does that and brings Saul in. And it's notable that the apostles accept Barnabas's testimony. Here is a man of stature. Here is someone who's recognized by the apostles, by the disciples who had met with Jesus originally, now the apostles. Here was somebody who was trusted. Here was somebody who could be believed. If Barnabas said something, people knew that it was right and it was true. There was integrity in the man. And so Saul is welcomed in. And not only is he welcomed in, but he begins a ministry which, of course, is going to develop later on in his life where he's able to debate with the Hellenistic Jews. That is, people who were Jews, but also had embraced the Greek and Roman philosophical thinking, the spirit of the age. And they had blended a, a, a form of Judaism and a form of the spirit of age and blended together and were often very educated and very able people. And, and, and they were a challenge. Paul was able to debate with them to the extent that they got really annoyed and tried to kill him. And that was all possible because of Barnabas. And then lastly for this morning, Acts chapter 11. And we'll read, we'll read from verse 19 of Acts chapter 11 persecution broke out and the church was scattered. We read this. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And news of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. God is at work. Boundaries are breaking down. Preconceived notions of what the gospel was for and who it was for were changing. No longer just a, a Jewish group. But there were those whose hearts were stirred and were told that despite the persecution, despite the fact they had been scattered because of that, they went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And if you want to read before that, when you get home later in the story of Peter with Cornelius and everything else, we can see that the church is moving out. And despite the challenge, and that should encourage us, despite the challenges of our day, opportunities often human frustrations and restrictions and hassles can be God's opportunity for you beginnings, you growth, you connections. And that's what happens here. The church is moving out. 
And when the church in Antioch in Jerusalem hears that, who do they send? Do they send one of the apostles just to make sure that they're behaving themselves and falling into life and using the right liturgy and all the rest of it? No, they send Barnabas. He's obviously now seen as like a deputy apostle. And he's sent because they've identified within him gifts. And so he goes and we're told that when he arrived, he was filled with joy because he saw what the grace of God was doing. And he was able to do that because we're told he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. How, and I pray this for my own heart as much as for anyone else, how we need to be those who are identified as good people. And I don't mean that in any kind of twee kind of way. But somebody whose life, whose language, whose conduct, whose concern shows that we're full of the Holy Spirit and faith, positively attractive, not burdened and broken and bowed down, but uplifted, refreshed and restored. But also humble. See what happens. It's been very easy for Barnabas to be quite chuffed. After all, he'd been sent, you know, as deputy to the apostles. And this isn't it's a connection, it's a wee illustration. When I was at Green Bank Church in Clarkston as the probationer minister, and Green Bank was then a very large, affluent suburban church. I told you before, they couldn't get the Sunday school all in on a Sunday morning. There wasn't enough room for them. And you regularly would have three or 400 people there. And it was a good church to be, minister, to be a minister in, obviously, but to be an assistant minister. Because when a vacancy committee were coming to see you, well, let's be honest, you'd have to be really pretty dire. Because they would come in and look around and think, oh my goodness, imagine this church was full. I mean, even I might get a charge. Um, you know, they would look around and they would say, oh, a big congregation here and a lot of young people and all the rest of it and everything. Of course, when you were interviewed, people would say, oh, very impressive. And of course, as the probation, as the assistant, you had to say, it was nothing to do with me. Barnabas wasn't wanting to get the credit or take the glory or have the name. He saw that there were opportunities. He identified that there were needs that had to be met. And so he goes to Tarshish. And let's be honest, it wasn't just send somebody a wee text or an email saying, Hi Paul, do you fancy coming down and spending a few weeks with us? He actually had to go and get him. He may even have had to persuade him to come back out to public ministry. And he brings them to Antioch. And for a whole year, they teach and encourage the church, to the extent that there, for the first time, Christians, the disciples, were called Christians. Barnabas wasn't full of himself. Think of John the Baptist, and when Jesus came and said, he must increase, and I must decrease, that should be the calling of all, all Christians, certainly the calling of all those who are involved in ministry. And having that eye to identify somebody who can be a blessing, to encourage somebody who's a younger person in the faith, to nurture them, to support them, to provide opportunities for them, to begin ministry. And as a fellowship, in a small way, we have sought to do that over the years. And rightly so. And as we look to the future, we need to look at that. Who next will stand in this pulpit or wander about this platform? Who next will God raise up to minister to us his word and lead us on, not just the 2020s, but God willing, the 2030s and the 2040s? Barnabas was willing to go on a search. 
to identify somebody who was going to be a blessing to the church. That's the kind of man he was. No bother about his own name or reputation. He's only going to care about that. But passionate about Jesus. Passionate for his kingdom. Passionate for the gospel. That's why he's a man that we all need to think about and learn from. And we'll do more of that next Sunday. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for these stories in your word, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, of real people. And of you, O God, a real God who made a dramatic impact on real lives. And we thank you for the example of Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Someone who was known to be a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And Lord, if nothing else, we come this morning and say we want to be that good woman or good man. Not goody two-shoes. But good because Jesus is modelled within us and revealed amongst us. That spirit of encouragement, of exhorting each other, of helping each other, especially for those of us who are going through times when we're a bit down, and a bit weary, and a bit sad. And so continue to build us up together in that most holy faith. Continue to release the gifts amongst us that you desire for us in order to fulfill our calling as a church and bring to us those who will enable us to grow and to move on in your purposes. As we offer ourselves afresh, Lord Jesus, to you and to your service. Amen.